You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. And uh, he looked at me, dove down into the water, and he came up and and threw this big glob of green seaweed in my lap. And I'm going, I wonder what's the right etiquette. So all of our work echoes that in trying to broaden how do kids think about what it means to be a scientist. It's not um, necessarily somebody in a white lab coat with a beaker. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 222, Under the Sea, airing for the first time on Sunday, December 20th, 2015. Have you ever explored the ocean floor? Many of us, even longtime coastal dwellers, have had little experience with the creatures who roam the depths of the sea. Today we speak with Mary Cerullo, Associate Director of Friends of Casco Bay, and the Gulf of Maine Research Institute Chief Education Officer, Lee Peake, about Maine waters and how humans can better coexist with their waterbound neighbors. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Apothecary by Design. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines prepared by experienced professionals with a focus on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way that it's meant to be. And by the Rooms family of restaurants, who are hosting their third annual New Year's Eve charity gala at Boone's Fish House. The evening starts with a prefix menu in front of a fireplace with live jazz, then kicks into high gear upstairs from 9 p.m. till 1 a.m. with music by the Jason Spooner Band. Special giveaways all evening and your enjoyment will help raise money to feed hungry children in Maine through full plates, full potential. Last year, the rooms raised $10,000, and this year, they want you to help them beat that number. Call 207-774-5725 for reservations. Have fun this New Year's Eve by giving back. One of my favorite things to do is interview people who are very passionate about the work that they are engaged in. And one such individual is here with me today. This is Mary Cerullo, who's an award-winning author of 21 nonfiction children's books on the ocean, as well as a handbook for teachers on using children's literature in the science classroom. Her latest book is Shark Expedition. Mary is the Associate Director of Friends of Casco Bay and has over 40 years experience as a science translator. As such, she has interpreted marine issues for the general public and for marine user groups through the New England Aquarium, the Maine New Hampshire Sea Grant College Program, the Great Bay New Hampshire National Estuarine Research Reserve, and the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. Impressive. Oh, well, you know, it's a very eclectic incestuous world of marine science and marine education. Well, but still, it's interesting that you have more than just a main reach. You also have New Hampshire, New England, and I know that we've talked with people before who have been on the show, and they've talked about this whole, the Gulf of Maine and how large it is. So it's not just, it's not just Maine. It's encompassing right. a much larger Cape area. Cod through Nova Scotia. Yes, and it's all one amazing, very threatened ecosystem warming faster than 99% of the rest of the world's oceans, which is 
amazing. And why is that? Uh, it has to do with changes in the, the current patterns uh, and um, uh, I think that's, that's primarily it, but they're also investigating why. Uh, uh, because uh, cold, cold water does come down from, uh, from the north and filter into it, but there's only a few entrances, exits into the Gulf of Maine uh, from the ocean side. Yeah, way out in George's Bank used to be dry land during the uh, uh, glacial period. They found woolly mammoth bones out there, you know, a couple hundred miles out to sea. So it's really, it's really a fascinating ecosystem. Now you live in North Yarmouth, mm-hmm. but you are closely associated with the Friends of Casco Bay. Mm-hmm. And my office looks out over, over the harbor in Portland, South Portland, and it's a. Uh, it's a very inspirational view because you see all sorts of boats going by and people using the bay in all sorts of different ways. And I think one of the things that makes Casco Bay so fascinating is it's beautiful, but it, there's lots of industry going on. Our, uh, my, my office overlooks the uh, tanker uh, port that uh, connects to a pipeline that takes oil all the way up into Montreal. Uh, and you see the ferry boats go by, the windjammers. There's always something going on, and it's a, it's a truly vibrant bay. Why did you get interested in this particular part of the much bigger ocean? What's what's your draw to Casco Bay? I think it's because, uh, well, when we were thinking of places that had quality of life, we were either thinking of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, or Portland, Maine. And my husband had just. Uh, graduated law school and and so we ended up here and uh, uh, I worked with an underwater photographer from this area Bill Kurtzinger who used to uh, be a National Geographic uh, contract photographer and he's always said it's way more interesting uh, diving in cold water because first of all you can hardly see more than a few feet ahead and that's because it's rich in food plankton versus the tropics where you can see a hundred feet in front of you. So if you can master this environment, uh, you see all sorts of things that pop out of the kelp beds or that are hidden at the bottom of the water uh, that you normally can't even detect. So there's there's a sense of mystery in our waters here. And also because they're so uh, cold, uh, cold water holds more oxygen and carbon dioxide, which you know f- supports the whole food web in the ocean. So there's an abundance of life here, even if it's not as colorful as what you see in the tropics. But any chance I get, I like to go to the tropics too. I used to teach uh, uh, teacher courses and we'd go to uh, St. Thomas during school vacation week and, you know, have to explore the habitats there. And I came up with the concept of, you know, sitting around where saying, well, how are we going to explain this to our principals back home? So I came up with the concept of city fish, country fish, which is the city fish are the ones that live in the coral reefs where it's really compact, uh, lots of niches, like apartment buildings. It was an area that's active day and night versus the country fish that kind of live close to the bottom, are very attuned to the seasons, and 
uh, like I like to say, they wear L.L. Bean colors, you know, kind of mottled brown and gray to, to match their habitat. Uh, so it works for me. And what's been fun is trying to come up with these analogies to try to explain to people different aspects of the marine environment. So by day, I do that at Friends at Casco Bay, trying to explain, you know, threats to, you know, our Casco Bay from, you know, nutrient pollution and ocean acidification. And on the weekends, I do it on a kid level, which is, you know, really fun things like, you know, why you should be friends with sharks or uh, what if you were trying to find the giant squid that kind of thing. And it allows me the opportunity to to kind of be a Walter Mitty, like to put myself in different environments that I'll never get to, like looking for the giant squid or uh, going down in a, a submarine. Uh, but I did go dive with sharks one time and that was amazing. I highly recommend it. Well, as you're think, as you're talking about this, it's making me think about. Um, we we just got back from the Caribbean, my family and I. I've never ever been snorkeling ever in my many years of being on this planet, and it opens up a whole new world. At first, I thought I was going to drown, so I had to get past that <laughs> that whole thing in the mouth and be able to breathe. That was really tough for me. But when you're looking down there, it's amazing. It's amazing what you see. And it's amazing, like, how we were watching um, a stingray kind of burrow its way into the sand and watching his that interaction between the stingray and then the two fish that were kind of around it. And it's something that you don't, I, I don't know, in all, all these years of walking around on hard soil, I, I couldn't even conceive of this other world that existed, even though I know it's been there and I've lived in Maine all my life. Mm-hmm. That's so, so perfect because... That is, I mean, people look at the surface of the ocean, looks fine. They don't actually have a chance to get down into it and just discover all the amazing things. What I, I was saying, I used to take teachers, and the first time that I did, I was snorkeling with them, and I almost drowned because I kept going, oh, 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 look at that, when I pointed to everything because I had worked at the New England Aquarium, and I knew aquariums, but it's a whole different experience when you're surrounded by them, and you get this, you really get to observe their behavior in a, a whole way in which you're actually part of it, and you're affecting it, because, for example, my daughter scuba dives, and she's just sent me a little video. They were in Hawaii, and a sea turtle came up to her and checked her out and swam away. So you become part of that ecosystem, and it I think it changes you in your whole appreciation for this other whole world. It's just wonderful and amazing, and, and quite threatened. Uh, where were you in the Caribbean? Uh, we were off Grand Cayman. Oh, so fun. So did you go to the Stingray City? We went to Stingray City, which was also very interesting because uh, I had my 14-year-old with me, and she has never done any scuba diving, and she's never done any sort of touching of wildlife. And it's amazing to see the people standing there with all these stingrays that seem to be quite acclimated to human beings. Mm, oh, they They are. come right up, and <clears throat> you can touch them very gently. And That's so cool. I mean, she was she was just amazed by this. And this is a, this is just a normal high school freshman. I know. And that's the that's the age when I started getting interested in the ocean when I was thirteen. People would say, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I'm going, I. I guess I ought to know. So I came up with the idea, I'm going to be an oceanologist. And then it took me a year to realize, no such word, it's an oceanographer. But by then I was hooked. But I was on a, uh, I worked uh, with another underwater photographer who I did the sharks books with, and Jeff Rotman. And we went to 
Stingray City. And we got there before the cruise ships did. We had two boys that we were photograph. he was photographing. And he, uh, their dad is a really, uh, a world famous diver too. And so they, the, the boys were 12 and 13 and they stuffed their dive vests with squid to attract the stingrays, not needed. They went crazy. The uh, stingrays, when they eat, they, they kind of suck the food into their mouths. These boys came up with these welts on their necks. They were quite excited to go back to school to show them off later in the week. It's like, that's a very interesting sort of kiss that you yes. have there. Yes. I got a hickey from a stinger. Uh, but we were there for hours, and you could lift them up. And, uh, you know, they were totally charming. You know, they swam up to you. So I, that's a cool place to go. They started that because um, fishermen would go into that shallow lagoon and clean their catch and the stingrays soon realized that this was free food so they come in every day for that and now they go from tourist boat to tourist boat like trick-or-treaters and you can see them hopping from one facility you know one boat to the other and then around four o'clock they go out and they feed up in deep water so it doesn't totally mess up their um, uh, behavior but I think your point that that we become part of the ecosystem is a really important one, and and we I, I think we tend to believe that it, we're very anthropocentric kind of uh, peoples. You know, we believe that everything is centered around us, and that creatures sort of exist maybe I don't know they're peripheral to us. But when you go scuba diving or you're there with the stingrays, you realize that these are creatures that have personalities, and it's not just a little neural network that's kind of causing them to move forward and back and towards food and away from predators. It's, it's a very interesting and humbling thing to realize that we're coexisting with these very intelligent other creatures. Absolutely. And, and uh, w- uh, one time I spent a week with uh, dolphins uh, at this place called the Dolphin Research Center in Florida where they would offer courses. So from morning to night, we studied dolphins, we dived with dolphins, we fed dolphins and observed dolphins. So I was sitting by myself uh, with my feet dangling in the water in this little dock where there were a number of dolphins in a pen, quite a large uh, enclosure. And this uh, one dolphin came up to me. He was a three-year-old dolphin. And uh, he looked at me, dove down into the water, and he came up and and threw this big glob of green seaweed in my lap. And I'm going, oh, I wonder what's the right etiquette. So I thought about it so I, I threw it back he threw it back at me I'm throwing it back at him and I'm going oh wow interspecies communications this is so cool and then all of a sudden his mother comes up and pushes him away to the other side of the enclosure as if to say you don't know this stranger you can't play with strangers so I was so crushed uh, and then they told me later that this was the third calf she'd had and the first two had died so it was like a helicopter mama dolphin it was so weird, but that behavior of uh, the intricacies of their behavior and their relation to each other and to humans was amazing. They were next to a marina, and dolphins like to imitate sounds. So there was this one dolphin that that had picked up on the sound of uh, the motorboats when they were leaving. He'd go <laughs> just like that, or they'd squeak like you, uh, and they would move their mouths even though they don't need their they don't have vocal cords, so they make sounds through their blowholes. So they didn't really need to move their mouths, but it was just being polite, because we did too, you know, that kind of thing. It's just 
there's just so much that we don't understand about these animals, but there's a lot smarter than we, th- we think, including, you know, like the stingrays that come up to you. Well, I love the idea that you are a science translator, because I, I think that this is, this is one of the great things about, I don't know, the last 100, 200 years or so is all the naturalists that we've had going out into the world and discovering things and learning things and classifying things. But translating that into something that just we mere human non-scientists can understand is pretty big because it opens up the world in a much um, larger way. Mm-hmm. And and <clears throat> having been trained, I, you know, bef- when I thought I was going to be an oceanographer, I majored in geology and biology, and I was going to go to grad school, and then I got a job at the New England Aquarium, and I realized quickly that I was a dilettante and n- not going to get an advanced degree. But enough so that I can talk with scientists who are trained to talk to other scientists. So, you know, they have to use the big words like anthropomorphic. It just drives me crazy. It means man-made, you know, anthropomorphic pollution or whatever. Um, uh, so they're really reticent about um, talking normal, but they get so enthused about If you really ask them about their work, they'll go on and on and on because it's a passion for everyone. And so really fun to interview, uh, you know, I met a guy at Woods Hole who was studying uh, copepods, which are these little tiny zooplankton, animal plankton. They're really important on the ocean food chain. And he explained to me that if uh, a cheetah and a copepod were the same size and had a race, that the copepod would beat the cheetah. You know, try, those trying to use those analogies to explain the importance or the coolness of different aspects of marine life is what I really enjoy and and also just to see scientists like Clyde Roper um, he and I did a book together on uh, giant squid and he's the world's expert on giant squid a man's in his mid-70s spent his entire career uh, studying squid and many different kinds of squid are named after him because of his inspiration to his graduate students but he just gets so excited about giant squid. They actually went down in a submarine, a small two-person sub, to look for giant squid at depth. And they wouldn't let him go down because they knew if he saw one, he'd get so excited, he'd start thrashing around <laughs> and probably crash the, the vessel. But uh, those are the people that are just, if kids and, and adults could meet some of these people, um, they would just get so enthused about science too and uh, not think of it as one more boring subject to have to master. Well, you brought some of your books in with you. You brought in Shark Expedition and City Fish, Country Fish, and Giant Squid. And now we have Spencer, our (laughs) audio engineer, audio producer over there, and we can't get him to stop reading the books. He's clearly very interested in the Giant Squid book, and he's already made it through the Shark Expedition book. So So Shark Expedition, Giant Squid's really compelling. It, it, it is so fun. And you know what's neat is I have no artistic talent whatsoever. So I can do the words and I can think about what photos or images we want. But um, the way designers uh, and artists conceptualize uh, the books, it just, it's like a whole new book to me when I see how they put them together. For example, the Giant Squid book has a cover that's black and red. I never would have thought of a marine book as looking good with a black and red cover, but it it works. And uh, 
So it's really, that's a whole other aspect. So when I talk, sometimes I go into schools and I talk to kids about the, um, the publishing process, you know, first writing and writing and writing and writing, um, and then, uh, then the layout, the design, and the proof and all that kind of stuff to get it to fruition. Uh, that, that's been a really fun learning experience for me, too. How have you brought some of your broad um, range of experiences with publishing and writing and doing um, the oceanography work, even without a, an advanced degree, but certainly working within this field? How have you brought this back to Maine as the associate director of Friends of Casco Bay? How does that work translate for you? M most of the work that I do for Friends is uh, explaining the science that we do. We're an advocacy group, but it's science-based uh, so we collect a lot of data. We have wonderful volunteers who sample the water quality of the bay, the uh, temperature, the dissolved oxygen, uh, the pH, uh, from April through October along 35 sites around Casco Bay. We have a science staff that goes out on our research vessel and they sample year-round from the surface to the bottom. We do other kinds of, of exploration of uh, you know, pesticides flowing into the bay or um, uh, all sorts of other projects like eelgrass uh, pop population or, or disappearance. So that, uh, that information uh, doesn't ever just sit on a shelf we use it to advance our advocacy by either getting the general public involved in issues or working with the legislature or working with regulators for the state or the national level. So all that requires translating the data into something that's meaningful. Um, and like you said before, people think of themselves first, including me. So it really has to come back as why does why does it matter to me? I'm trying to make a living. I'm trying to get my kids up in the morning and go out to school. Why does this matter to me or to my kids? So that's part of the challenge. And one of the fun thing about Friends is that it's a small enough organization. So when we start on a project, for example, we try to distill down a lot of our issues into uh, a one-page explanation, like an elevator speech, so that if people say, well, why, why is this important that we can actually all say, first of all, the same approach, but also say it accurately, which is really important to keep your credibility. Um, so we sit around, we brainstorm. I tell you, the, you know, the, the editing that goes on in that office is more than goes on for me to make a whole book. <laughs> uh, but we just want to make sure that we get the information right. And we try to tell stories to make it compelling because we've discovered that if you can break it down to one person's experience or how it's going to impact you, that just resonates so much better than sharing the data, uh, which works if you're in a scientific forum. So we actually have to think about two different audiences at every time because we also want to maintain our credibility with scientists, um, especially since we're a nonprofit, we're not a research organization per se. And I think uh, we've done that really well for over 25 years. But it also kind of sets us apart because we're a conservation organization first, but we're also very careful of when we take a stand. So sometimes it takes us longer to come to a position. But once we make that statement, you know, it's usually easier to convince the powers that be that, that we're standing on solid ground. I like the fact that you call yourselves friends of Casco Bay, as if they're sort of two living entities, which they really are. Right, right. And you're a group of individuals that are 
passionate about this this body of water which contains all these living entities and so thus becomes itself a living entity. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that was very purposeful as well. Well, and it actually started with, as a grassroots organization uh, with people who were concerned about the health of Casco Bay. There had been a report that came out that said uh, Casco Bay was one of the most polluted estuaries in the nation. It was based on really small, small data. Uh, but it got people energized to start thinking we really have to protect this place because it appears pristine, especially if you go to some places like you know the Mississippi Delta or parts of Florida, you can see uh, problems from you know, red tides and uh, pollutants coming down through the bay. It's a lot harder to see it. And, and like you said, it's really harder to get into that cold water <laughs> and really experience it yourself. So uh, that organization was purposely started uh, by Citizen Action. And even though we now have a staff, we have a Casco Baykeeper who uh, patrols the bays, part of the spokesperson for the bay, uh, it's still so much uh, a volunteer organization. We wouldn't exist without, uh, you know, this year we had 100 volunteers sampling the water, plus people doing beach cleanups, plus people doing storm drain stenciling, community events, talking to their neighbors about stopping using pesticides and fertilizers. So it's still very citizen-oriented. I think it's, it's interesting, because believe it or not, I do swim in the main waters. Not, <laughs> <Brave woman. laughs> very, not for very long periods of time, but long enough. And I will sometimes open my eyes underwater, even though it's very salty. But having snorkeled and, you know, you have your mask in front of you and you're actually, the water becomes almost like the air you would breathe. And once you do that and once you see the water in that way, you can't imagine dumping something overboard. You can't imagine putting something into essentially, I don't know, what could be considered the air that the fish are breathing Mm -hmm. or that you are swimming around in. But before you do that, it's almost like, oh, well, what's the big deal? You know, I'm out on my boat, you know. Who cares? There's so much water out there. It's all got to get dispersed. And it's funny how things shift when you're actually in it. Mm-hmm. And it's so true because, you know, they always had this expression, dilution is the solution to pollution because there's so much water. What am I little action going to do? And I think one of the recent conversations about climate change is that everybody can do something. And, uh, you know, we use sewage treatment facilities, you know, we flush the toilet, we (laughs) throw away our garbage. Uh, But if everybody can do one thing to um, change one small practice, tune up their car, pick up their dog poop, that kind of stuff, it all has a cumulative impact so that we're, we're not gonna change our whole lifestyles. But if people are aware of things that they're doing, unintentionally uh, that are impacting the marine environment, in my case, but also air and water, uh, it, it, it really can make a difference. We've even always, you know, even on the staff, we're discovering new things that are impacting the ocean that we didn't even think about. Microbeads, which are these scrubs that are in cleansers and um, cosmetics, well, research has found that they are getting into the ocean food chain because they go right through sewage treatment plants. We're just realizing that washing your fleece jacket, which you can't live without in Maine, is getting thousands of threads at each washing into the ocean food chain. So 
don't wash your fleece jacket very often. That kind of thing, simple things, but if people know what to do, that's the thing I found about Mainers. They all want to do the right thing. That's why they're here. That's why they've made sacrifices. The weather, salaries, it's to have the quality of life in Maine, and a lot of that is tied to uh, the ocean. So they want to do what they can do to, to protect it. So I think we come fortunately with the mindset that is very geared to protecting the environment where there are other parts in the country where they're there for jobs or um, warm weather or whatever and if you're a transplant sometimes you just want life to be the way it was from where you left so you want that perfect lawn down to the water's edge no because everything that goes into your lawn or off your lawn goes into the water uh, and I and I think people here are more sensitive to that. But, you know, we always can use a knock on the head and, you know, a reminder that there's a lot more that we can do. But uh, we find that people work better with uh, a positive attitude than guilt. <laughs> we have enough guilt <laughs> in our personal lives. You, let, you know, that point is so important because I do believe there's a lot of people who feel very passionate about the environment and about quote saving the planet and um, and I, as a doctor I have not ever found guilt to be particularly motivating to any of my patients ever there's <laughs> never a time where I've sat down with a patient and said you know that you're killing your children's lungs by smoking in front of them <laughs> they, that never engenders any sort of relationship or any sort of positive change on their part however if you can go into something with a bit of information and sort of some sort of sense that we're really all in this together and we're all human and we're all really trying to do the best we can and have a positive attitude about it. I think people do want to change. And I think people do want to feel like they're they're doing something that's moving us all forward collectively. Mm -hmm. And we also have a saying, uh, think local, act local. Because when you look at the whole, you know, the whole climate change thing, for example, and the, the world impact, it's, you, you just shut down. I mean, there's nothing I can do. But here in Maine, uh, one of our uh, big sources of carbon dioxide in the ocean, which makes the water more acidic, is from nitrogen, which is in sewage, it's in um, fertilizers, uh, it's in air deposition. So stop putting fertilizer in your lawn. Simple, you know, and it really has uh, an impact. So there, there are things that we can do locally, but I, I find my whole life has been geared to protecting the environment and if I think too long, I just go, well, I'm glad I'm getting on. <laughs> you know, I can't handle this anymore. But if I think I take it in small little pieces locally, I, I have a lot better perspective. Well, I think after um, listening to this conversation that people are going to be interested in the books that you've written, especially if they have small children or larger children like <laughs> our buddy Spencer over there. <laughs> Thank you, Spencer. Um, how can people learn more about the books that you're writing? And also, how can people learn more about Friends of Casco Bay? Oh, okay. Well, Friends of Casco Bay has a great website called cascobay.org. One word, Casco Bay. And uh, we also in uh, will be announcing on our website our annual meeting and our volunteer recognition event which is in late January and anybody's invited to that it's free and so they can get more information on that and if they want to find out about my books and sometimes I go to schools although not very much because I have a full-time job uh, I have a website which some really smart 20-somethings made up for me one afternoon it's called marymcerullo.com 
So it's C-E-R-U-L-L-O, or um, I think my bio's on our website too, so you can see how to spell the name. But it's fun having those two different lives, I have to say. One for kids, one for adults, and they, they each have their own perks and challenges. Well, you've really inspired me to go out and learn more about the ocean and to try to do what I can to keep the ocean clean, the ocean where I live and the ocean where I travel to. So I appreciate your coming in and talking with me today about this. We've been speaking with Mary Cerullo, who is an award-winning author of 21 nonfiction children's books on the ocean and also the associate director of Friends of Casco Bay. Thanks for the work that you do. Oh, thank you, Lisa. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, whose 15 years of experience and unique perspective on the industry puts creativity and enjoyment into house hunting. Specializing in properties in southern Maine, Mary will work with you to get to know your wants, desires, and dreams, and make sure that the home you move into is as close to perfect as it gets. And she'll make sure you have fun along the way. Because while moving is one of the more stressful events you'll encounter, finding the right home doesn't have to be. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in Southern Maine, be in touch with Mary and find out more about why when it comes to buying and selling real estate, a good time really can be had by all. Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, your connection to living right. Go to marylibby.com for more information. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. It's interesting for me, having lived in Maine for many years now, to see the evolution that um, the Gulf of Maine Research Institute has undergone. Lee Peak has been part of this evolution. She is the chief education officer at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. She does extensive work with K-12 teachers and students across Maine in order to nurture scientific literacy in the next generation of Mainers. Lee lives in South Berwick. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. So I love that you are the chief education officer. I love that we have these now. We've had chief financial officers and chief executive officers, but you've got this really important title. What does it mean? It's a great question. A lot of people ask me, why does a Marine Research Institute have an education division to start out with? And I think part of it is that the Gulf of Maine Research Institute has a long-standing commitment to the problems that we're working on are multi-generational in nature. And so it's partly our job to prepare the generation that's going to inherit the problems and challenges from us. And so that's part of why education is such a core part of the mission. Now, you bring in a lot of children over the course of a year. I know my kids have been to the Gulf of Maine <laughs> Research Institute. And it seems like there's, there's always something new to talk about. What are some of the favorite things that you've seen happen there? Um, so the highlight of our days at GMRI is when groups of 50 or 60 fifth and sixth graders come through the building. And um, one of the most exciting things we've seen is an evolution in 
the underlying dispositions of those kids. They're getting more sophisticated. They're asking more sophisticated questions. Uh, they're highly sensitive to issues of climate. Um, and we love seeing that evolution over time and um, love being a part of it. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking back to uh, my early association with um, places that we would call, I guess, aquariums, more like. And we were just like, oh, like, there's the pretty starfish and, you know, here's an octopus and here's. But what you're talking about really is science in a much on a much broader scale. Absolutely. I mean, the content that we deliver right now in the Cohen Center for Interactive Learning is essentially called complex systems because the Gulf of Maine ecosystem is a complex system. So kids investigate how to cod, herring, copepod, lobsters, and most importantly, people intersect in the Gulf of Maine. And it reflects the work that our scientists are doing right there in the building to understand how those key species are intersecting and are changing over time, especially with the changes in climate. How far does the Gulf of Maine actually reach? It's a pretty big area. Exactly. So the Gulf of Maine stretches all the way from Cape Cod up to Nova Scotia. And uh, so I like to tease my Massachusetts friends that when they're swimming in the Cape Cod Bay, they're actually swimming in the Gulf of Maine. Um, and uh, you've probably heard a lot of the news that we're warming 99% faster than the other oceans on the planet. So we've turned into a little bit of a opportunity to investigate what does that really look like and to involve kids in investigating what that looks like. So how do you involve the kids? So we have two big education programs, and I'm going to talk about especially our citizen science program, that where we actually have kids out in the field investigating invasive species in Maine. And so they're looking at things like green crabs, but they're also looking at freshwater invasive species as well as plant species in the forests and fields. Um, and underlying that is getting kids to understand that um, the scientific process has um, ways of thinking that are inherent to it that give us a way of thinking about the problems that we face every day. Um, the second program is the one we offer in the Cohen Center, which is Lab Venture. And again, we're really focused on how do kids explore the scientific process and get an idea about what that looks like and feels like so they can begin to apply that in their own lives. It was at one point um, not that cool to be into science. Now, this was several decades ago as, as a female going into a scientific profession. There, it just wasn't, I don't know, it, yeah. it wasn't something that kids really gravitated towards. But now it seems like you can go into science and you're just as highly regarded as someone who goes into athletics, say. Why do you think that that transition has happened? It's a great question. Um, I... I think it has become much more popularized to be a little more nerdy, even especially for girls. There's been a big shift, um, so we see maker spaces, we see um, popular television that's whether for little kids or older kids that is focused on science and scientific investigation. We see TV shows where the nerds are the heroes. So you think of something like Numbers, that television show, which where the mathematician is the hero. Um, I think there's a lot that's changed in popular culture that's allowed kids to sort of come out of the closet as, as nerds and really embracing science. It's funny because you're talking about these, the, what's happening right now. What was going on back when I was growing up was um, 
We had slim, good body. He was all about the healthiness back in the, the, I don't know, 70s, I guess. And then we had Bill Nye, the science guy. He came along. Mm -hmm. I think he actually lives in Maine somewhere. So we have these, we have these iconic figures that have populated children's television for quite some time. But you're right. Now it seems like it's just everywhere. And it's not, it's kind of a given that girls would just be as likely to go into science as, as boys would. I think another big factor is if you think about the kinds of things that have focused on um, popularizing forensic science as another factor where, you know, it's not that you, we try to, all of our work echoes that and trying to broaden how do kids think about what it means to be a scientist. It's not um, necessarily somebody in a white lab coat with a beaker and that, that you can be out on the ocean doing science uh, or you can be um, in the woods or you can be doing all the things you love and still be doing science. And I think all of that adds up to kids really embracing it a lot more strongly. I'm thinking about my 14-year-old. She's almost 15, and she loves medical detective shows. She loves House, and, you know, she does. She loves all the shows that you're—she loves Bones. She loves all the shows you're talking about that are forensic-oriented, which is kind of funny because we think of it, maybe that's a little gruesome. You know, maybe maybe some of these shows, they shouldn't really be that appealing, but but somehow they are. Yeah, and I wouldn't underestimate the gruesome factor. <laughs> we just uh, did a video of one of our scientists, Dr. Walkalay, who does extracts a bone from the ear of a tuna that lays down the evidence of that tuna's life, how old it is, the conditions it grew up under. And it's a fairly gruesome process to extract the bone. And we uh, have kids out on the back lawn looking at that every day, and the cool factor is very high when we split open the tuna head. <laughs> Now, why did you get into this? What's you spent, you said, I think 17, 18 years in publishing. Yeah, so my life really has been committed to education in various capacities um, for my whole career. And one of the things that I liked best about publishing was the opportunity to get voices out into the marketplace of people who are doing great work with uh, kids and teachers. The job at Gulf of Maine Research Institute gave me an opportunity to get my hands a little bit dirty actually doing the work hands-on with kids and teachers, and that's been absolutely fantastic. I'm not a marine scientist, um, so it's also been a huge learning opportunity for me to learn a new area. Um, and um, most of all, there's an amazing team at GMRI, and we really do operate as a team. And um, that's been, an to inherit this amazing programs and colleagues has been a wonderful experience. We've had people on the show from um, from the Bigelow Lab, and of course we have great laboratories, the Jackson Lab up in Bar Harbor. Do you work together with these other institutions? We do, especially our research scientists collaborate with pretty much everyone around the state who's thinking about or working on the Gulf of Maine ecosystem, um, including at University of Maine and even down into New Hampshire and Massachusetts. Um, I would say, one of the key things for GMRI is that we have an interdisciplinary team. So we're looking at it from all aspects, biology, physics, the economic resources of the Gulf of Maine and how market prices drive what uh, fishermen are delivering onto the dock, all of those factors. Um, and I would say in the education programs, we're trying to replicate that and show science as an interdisciplinary activity. Um, school systems tend to artificially divide it into chemistry, physics, bio, but in reality, the real world is multidisciplinary and the problems are multidisciplinary. So collaboration is a key part of everything that we do.
It's interesting that from the beginning, you've embraced this translation aspect of science. I know that when I went up to visit the Jackson Lab, they were saying that this had been something that was relatively new over the last maybe 10 years, this translating bench science into something that could be more readily understood by perhaps non-scientists. But you've been doing this for a long time. Why Why was that important from the beginning? It's a great question. Um, I would say one of our fundamental beliefs at GMRI um, is that the problems that we will all be facing over the coming generations have at their heart something where scientific evidence can help us make decisions and make choices about it and that it's our job to find ways to communicate that science out in ways that suit the consumer and the learner Um, and that has sort of revved up everything we do to think about how do we help fishermen understand what's going on in the gulf of maine how do we help the next generation of kids understand that and how do we help everyone think about using evidence and scientific information um, as part of the decision-making process. You've partnered with um, local uh, purveyors of food to work on sustainable seafood. And the people from St. Joseph's actually wanted me to know about this, that you have been working with them to make sure that their seafood is sustainably harvested. Um, Where did that come from? So um, it's one of my favorite parts of the work we do at GMRI. Um, A huge percentage of the seafood that's eaten is eaten in restaurants um, and eaten not in your home. And so one of the things that we try to do is drive um, the joy for underutilized species by working with culinary partners and other sorts of um, organizational and institutional partners so that people are eating fish that we can fish uh, plentifully um, and try to drive market demand for those fish um, so that fishermen are more inclined and, and more to fish for them and bring them into the dock and get a higher price for them at the dock. So part of it is seeing uh, what we eat uh, as well as what we fish as all part of the whole ecosystem. And have you been able to interest kids in eating more of these sort of uh, different and diverse fishes? Such a great question. Um, At the college level, we see colleges, college kids demanding as part of their demand for local foods and healthy foods, demanding sustainable fish and demanding local fish. So our programs do work with some of the colleges to make sure that what they put on the plate in the colleges um, is traceable fish um, and sustainable fish. We just had the first public school system in Chicopee, Massachusetts sign up so that the public school system will also be serving Gulf of Maine responsibly harvested fish. So I think, as with so many things, the change is coming from the kids themselves. Now, why Chickpea, Massachusetts? I actually don't know the history and why in Chicopee. We'll have to ask uh, Jen Levin, who's head of our sustainable seafood (laughs) division, about why it was Chicopee. Well, it is. it has been interesting um, for me to watch, maybe not the fish uh, so much, but the, the demand even at the younger grades for things like organic foods grown locally, school gardens. And this was something that was unheard of maybe 20 years ago, but now it's caught on. So it seems as though the, the sustainably harvested fish is going to be similar. I hope so. I mean, I hope that kids... Um, having grown up with parents who have a different kind of appreciation than my parents did for local foods and sustainable foods and for the ecosystem around us, that um, these kids will continue their whole lives to demand 
um, that they understand where their food came from um, and that it's being collected in a way that it can be collected for generations to come. So I think there's a really good future for anyone who can trace the origins of the food um, and trace it from being picked up in the ocean all the way to the dock. What does the future hold for the children who are getting educational services at, at GMRI? Um, well, as many people have heard, we've just received quite a bit of funding from both NASA and NOAA um, to completely uh, reimagine the Cohen Center for Interactive Learning. And it's an incredibly exciting and slightly terrifying moment to think about delivering on those goods. Um, but there's three big pieces to that. One is um, renovating the content that, that kids experience when they walk through the Cohen Center. So it's a much more um, current state-of-the-art technology. The content will be focused on more squarely on climate and climate change and looking at weather and climate. Um, and NOAA also invested in us to bring adults into the space to have learning experiences around sea level rise and storm surge in Portland Harbor. So that's a big stretch for us, having adults in the Cohen Center um, and thinking about how to design content for that. So we're really excited about that opportunity. We also will have a new technology backbone in the Cohen Center that'll allow us uh, to deliver content out into science and technology centers and classrooms around the state, and in fact, anywhere in the country over broadband. Um, and finally, it's allowing us to design curriculum materials and interac interactive technologies that can be used by teachers in the classroom before the visit when they come and after they leave. And that kind of connection to the classroom is so important um, to be able to extend the experience from the Cohen Center out to a, to a multi-day investigation back in the classroom. So it's really, it's really exciting times. I've spoken to any number of children who have told me that they are specifically interested in becoming oceanographers. There's some interesting draw, even when we're young, to the ocean and the science of it. What do you think that's all about? It's amazing. We see that all the time, that kids, especially as they come up around age 10 to 14, are fascinated by the ocean. Um, I think the ocean is still one of the most mysterious places. There's so much we can't see there. Um, and so much going on under the surface, literally, that kids are drawn to that mystery and drawn to the enormity of the ocean. Uh, so we see kids from t inland and western Maine still showing up at our door saying, I really want to be a marine biologist. And so we're wondering, wow, how did that happen and how can we help that? Um, I think it's the mystery of it that has fascinated people for ages, you know? Lee, what is your connection to Maine initially? Yeah, I, um, I grew up in Virginia, and Maine was this mythical place up north <laughs> filled with moose, and we didn't, weren't sure what else, but it wasn't necessarily a place you were supposed to go. And uh, then had the opportunity to take a job in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and I thought, okay, if I can live in this mythical place, wouldn't that be amazing? And so I did and uh, set down some roots in South Berwick and I've loved it ever since. And um, I think the, uh, the mythology lives, you know, about all that is Maine and the diversity of everything that you can find and be in Maine. It's amazing. It's an amazing place. Well, I agree. And having lived in this <laughs> mythical place for many, many years, I think there still continues to be some interesting energy that floats about, you know, even as we're existing as um, normal humans walking the earth. So 
And I think the ocean is actually a big part of it. I think so too. And Maine has a very unusual education ecosystem in the sense that it's um, it's highly local controlled. So teachers have a lot of control in their classroom. Across the country, teachers are being stripped of their professional responsibility and freedom to do what they think is right in their classroom. That's not true here in Maine. We still invest a lot in our teachers. We have we made an investment in broadband technology to schools and public libraries, and that's an amazing infrastructure that we're able to use at the Cohen Center, off, coming off of the Cohen Center technology. Um, and simply the opportunity to work at population scale in Maine. So in my past, I've tried to work in places like New York City and LA, and uh, attempting to move those systems was nearly impossible. And yet, here in Maine, we can look at the whole system and talk to the operators within that system. And it's an amazing opportunity as an educator. What do you personally hope to see happen at GMRI, say, over the next five years? Um, I think the most important thing to me is that we're moving more squarely into helping kids um, look at the scientific evidence around ecosystem change and climate change and make decisions for themselves about what they see in that evidence. Um, And moving into that uh, public use of evidence and scientific understanding is also a key part for us. Um, I think that when we look out ahead, we're trying to prepare kids for jobs that don't even exist yet. And so it emphasizes the need to build in kids a set of skills around critical thinking and being a critical consumer of information, um, being both producers and consumers of science, even if you're just a citizen. Um, All of that, I think, is on our horizon to keep moving the needle on all of those fronts. We also imagine a world where every single child in Maine at some point in their career has an experience with GMRI and GMRI science. Maybe even once a year they're having an experience with that science. That would be amazing. Um, And I think finally, we also imagine doing a lot more work with teachers um, and helping teachers understand how they can use all the resources that we're bringing to the table in order to change how they're teaching math and science. Lee, what's the GMRI website so that people can learn more? Uh, We're at GMRI.org. We also are on Twitter and Facebook for GMRI, um, and there's a lot more information there. Uh, For those who are interested, we in the past interviewed Alan Lishness, who was previously at GMRI, and he had interesting things to say, so people can also go back and listen to that podcast. But for now, I I think this has been a fascinating conversation. We've been speaking with Lee Peake, who is the Chief Education Officer at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Mac Page an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. MacPage, accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 222, Under the Sea. Our guests have included Mary Cerullo and Lee Peake. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. 
follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Under the Sea show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Mac Page, Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, and Apothecary by Design. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Bellisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at lovemainradio.com. Just give it